Welcome back, everybody. Once again, this is BenjaCon 2022. It's the time of year where I get down and talk with all of my friends in a crazy week of just information, of sharing what we've seen. Comic-Con used to happen, and we would all get down together in the, in the San Diego area or wherever we were. We would always talk about things. And I wanted to keep that vibe going, even though we're all not together anymore. So this year, this Saturday, I've got on Tone Malazzo of Picking Up the Ghost and the Faith Machine. Author and developer, got some good things to say. An interesting character. So we're going to get into some of his some of his books, the reasons why he does what he does, and how he gets along. And you know what? It's just going to be a friendly discussion. And we're going to go ahead and just get this started. Hopefully you've been sticking with us the other for the other ones we've got this year, eight. We had eight, eight guests on this year, eight talks, and this is going to be the next to last one. Tomorrow we've got one more to do with Joshua Garcia. But in the meantime, we're going to get Tone on here and get him talking about his catch up with him. You may have seen him at WonderCon. You may have seen him at Comic-Con. You may have seen him somewhere else. And you may have seen that Instagram is not always working properly. This last night, two nights ago, was kind of crazy. We had Patrick on here and Instagram cut out on his side. And then on my side, it was doing weird things. But we're going to keep it doing what it does and make good things happen. And it's the thing with new technology. You always try stuff out. It doesn't work. It doesn't. It does. It does. Seeing about accepting the request here. Oh, I got a decline. Oh, yeah. There we go. There we can hear me. I can hear you. Oh, that, that was the big obstacle. It's literally my only microphone on this C Bluetooth headset. Okay. <laughs> All right, man. Nothing makes me. Nothing makes me feel as old as Instagram. The first time I signed up, I literally had to Google how to use Instagram and my fingers crumbled into dust and bone. Oh man, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a weird thing, man. I actually got on it pretty early just cause I wanted to see what Zuckerberg bought. Cause right when <laughs> I, I, I heard about it, but it was like, okay, photo sharing app, whatever. I've got Flickr and we can use that. <laughs> but suddenly people were like, no, this is really interesting. And. I, I, I'm not sure if I downloaded it before or just before Zuckerberg bought it before or after. I mean, but once he bought it, I was like, okay, now I got to check it out. And I kind of been on mm -hmm. it since. So ho hopefully it's working out for you. Yes. Yes. So far I'm, I'm at this point right now. I kept my, all through this whole process. I'm reminding myself, I'm a professional technology worker. I can do this. Yes. <laughs> it's the, the way they do things is kind of weird where buttons will change they're missing there's no there's no real instruction book it's just like you walk <laughs> by you walk by some kid and like hey what how do how do i do this and they're like no no, no you gotta <laughs> you, you gotta you gotta tap this and then send that and then when they reply you'll see the option it's like uh okay yeah so i mostly just use as a photo del okay that'll go on instagram and then i'll forget about it yeah pretty much <laughs> nice shirt you got there yeah I like it. Thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just came three days ago. Okay. Well, and also, don't forget that. I got this hanging on the wall. Oh, nice, nice. <laughs> the old ice creams. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I guess I built a kind of shrine to Mr. Benjamin in this corner. It's an awesome shrine. I, uh, I love it. Hey, so how, how, how have you been just in general? I know, you know, we haven't met up at a con or anything in a while. So, but I've seen you out there. I was, stuff. I was thinking we haven't seen each other in person like 10 years, I think, probably like since uh, that art show in South Park. Oh, not even South Park, at normal place. No, nope, it was North Park. North Park, North Park. You're right. Yeah. 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 That has uh, I could say finally I'm doing well. I'm readjusting from some things. The, uh, you know, the last administration was a bit rough on me psychologically, but I'm kind of embracing stoicism and realizing that I, I there's some things I can't affect. <laughs> yes. And sort of have to write it out. There's a slogan from, uh, I read in a Buddhist text, sunsets can be beautiful too. <laughs> yes. Yes. That, that's actually a very good point. Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> oh, doggone Buddhist. I like that one. So you're before we, before we really get into it, I was asking just about the con scene. Cause I, I think I saw you, was it WonderCon recently that you had done a, you had a booth? Mm -hmm. I've done, I had a table, I shared the table with Henry Hertz at WonderCon. Mm -hmm. And I had a table I shared with Lisa Kessler of Rainwell Press at Comic Fest. And then I was just a regular attendee. Well, I transitioned during Comic-Con from a regular attendee to pro because my friend Ron Coleman needed some more guests on his panel. Jonathan Mayberry and Scott Sigler both called in sick. Mm. So they were like, okay, we need unauthorized panel. So I swooped in, got my pro badge back. That one's been a whole thing, right? I let my pro badge expire. It was, it was up for renewal right before 2020 okay. was coming up. I was like, well, this, this isn't happening. So I'm just gonna, I'll renew next year. Mm -hmm. And renewals has been shut ever since then. So my pro status has been in, in dubious state, but now I got it back. Right. I feel like a real person. Yeah. Right. And that was for, that was for WonderCon or Comic-Con? That was for Comic-Con. That was for Comic-Con. So that, that's, that's my nameplate right there for my very first panel of Comic-Con. Okay. Very awesome. Very Put it on the wall. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Something similar happened to, to me. I got on, I got on a panel because a, a videographer, he did the stop motion thing. He's like, yeah, this is how I do my whatever. And he just put it out there on, on, on the internet. And I went and did music for it. I was like, yeah. okay, I can, I can put some audio sound effects. So I was playing around with audio tools at the time and just did some sound effects and sent it back to him. And he was like, Hey, want to be on the panel? I was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I've totally lost that badge and all of that. I had the little, little name placard and everything, but I totally lost that man. <laughs> hey, so. So how's the con scene now? I would say it's healthy. Like WonderCon ha was pretty bleak and not just for me. I barely sold any books there mm -hmm. and I knew one other vendor there. He, he's, he was like, this is me. He, he was, he sells knickknacks and stuff like that. You know, that kind of vendor. And uh, some of the other people I talked to, some did well, but for the most part, people were like, this, this is terrible. Comic Fest was good, but I, I it was a very different vibe. Right. And also I had, had a, had a home field advantage. That was one of the founding members of the convention. I knew a lot of people there how I got the table. Cause I work out, I still volunteer for them. I do their website for them okay. and I get the table and we were positioned nicely there. Well, position should be, should be a factor because at WonderCon, they put all of us authors off onto the side, way away from any other activity. So we're barely getting any foot traffic. Right. And at Comic Fest, I got to be right next to Mysterious Galaxy, the big sci-fi fantasy bookstore. In San Diego, so like we would get the spillover as people are passing by that. That worked out nicely. But Compaton, I mean, it was slightly smaller population there. Yeah. But healthy. 
I think I was, I think the vendors were happy that I talked to the small press people that I talked to were happy. Yeah. Good scene. I mean, the only thing I didn't like about it was they still don't have carpet there. And that's a little hard on the ankles after four days. Ah, yeah. That's a weird thing to bring up, but there you go. (laughs) No, I, I, I'm coming back to, you know, WonderCon and the Anaheim Convention Center. And yeah, I, I remember the carpet. Mm -hmm. So not having a carpet is kind of like, huh, all right. But, uh, but yeah, the, the big vendors, the big vendors, like the movie studios don't have those giant booths anymore. So it was quieter because you don't have these giant PA systems just blaring trailers at you all day long. Yeah. And then Marvel and DC don't have those giant booths there anymore. So other publishers were able to fill in that spot. And I found overall the whole experience much more interesting because honestly, over the last couple of years, I just skipped the middle section of the dealer's room. I go around it. I hit (laughs) the two ends of it. That's where the interesting stuff is for me. Well, you kind of know what the the models of the DCs are bringing anyway. And yeah, you know, so what are you really going to get there? You might get handed a free knickknack or something, but. Right, right. And yeah, it's pretty much standard fare. So, cause we were, we were talking about this earlier and I was thinking that a lot of the bigger cons, your, your, your major conventions, they'd be the ones that would be getting all of the traffic because, Hey, everybody wants to come back and Hey, if I do Mm -hmm. do a convention this year, I want it to be at Comic-Con. I want it to be at a PAX, you know, Mm -hmm. or or WonderCon, WonderCon or something. But then a lot of the smaller ones, I was concerned about them because Yeah, we are still kind of coming out of a pandemic. People aren't used to going around. We got the inflation and people are trying to save money so they may not be going out. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if the small scene is doing well or not. But I can only speak for Comic Fest and I know they've never had a problem selling the dealer's room, even even this year, even the one that happened right after the start of the pandemic. Yeah. No problems. Now that that, that dealer's room is maybe, I think there's maybe 30 tables in there. But even still, for you know, for something kind of out of the way, yeah, no difficulties. How how long has that one been around? Probably we started that. Wow, I think we started about ten years ago, nine, okay. nine ten years ago. Yeah. Okay, so that was that was a good time to start with the Comic Con blowing up and getting too big almost. I think we got a lot of mileage out of being spillover, right? <laughs> But, you know, this, it's kind of, and it was Mike Towery, the founder, he was a, one of the founders of Comic-Con, but then also he founded Comic Fest and his goal was to sort of get it back to some of the feeling that you had in those early days back in the seventies where you did, you're, you're spending time in the same facility that the guests are right it, in Comic-Con it's, it's a network, right? You don't know which hotel anyone's in. There's so extreme facilities there. People might be staying in Mission Valley, who knows, right. but for Comic Fest, like there's one hotel, one site, everybody's there. You might run into your, your favorite author, but they're having dinner later that evening. Oh. And I say it, it definitely hits that, hits that note. You know, you, you, I've many times I've just been walking from the area and like, I see those two people who are basically legends just walking past me, yeah. having a conversation about whatever. No, that's, that's very cool. Cause I, I definitely think that comics needs that sort of humbleness, maybe, you know what I mean? To a certain degree. <laughs> Well, there was a phase there for, for, oh yeah, there was a phase there where people were coming to Comic-Con to sell out, mm-hmm. right? They were, they were hoping to get picked up by a movie studio and the, like right. the, that Cowboy versus Aliens project, that was like a whole scam oh, and yeah, to do right. that. And they, they, they pulled it off. Right. <laughs> and after that happened, everybody else started getting dollars in their eyes and you know, you have to, 
even even as big an event as Comic Con is, that really shouldn't be your goal going there. No, not. Re- I mean, it's yeah, it's so once you start to, I guess, sour the community, and it's all about the Hollywood and you know pitches and everything, it, it just starts to get weird. So yeah, you know, I'm definitely glad they still got that that push and. The people from San Diego Comic Con know that because I can tell by the way they they still try to run their business versus how like the LA Comic Con does. Yeah. Oh yeah. I went to oh I went to LA Comic Con too. Okay. And that one had you know that was the first commercial Comic Con I've been to in quite a while. That was a different vibe there. Mm-hmm. You know, for one thing, there was like people selling food down in the table room. That was weird. It was a lot more TNA in the vendors hall. Like. Back in the nineties, it was all, there was there was comics publishers who were basically pornographers, right? Yes, Cardinal Comics used to do these biographies of of porn stars, and and there was the Euros Comics, whose both was covered in sheets because you know they didn't yeah. want anyone seeing what they had, stuff like that. All that stuff's gone at Comic Con now, but it was still there in L.A. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that did seem kind of weird. I, I actually have a picture of of me, a porn star, sitting in my lap. <laughs> because when I was when I was early on in San Diego, I was walking through the Comic Con, and I ended up in that row, you know, where the, a lot of more risky material was, and I was like, oh, okay, they have this here, you know. I was just taking <laughs> and having fun anyway, and then I see this porn star and her booth, and everybody's like crowded around, you know, you know, saying hi and everything, and there's this little old lady on the side, and I'm like. <laughs> Well, you're not here for a picture, are you? I was just joking, right? <laughs> you know, you're not here for a picture of her, are you? And she's like, oh, no, that's my daughter. Nah, nah, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. And then, like, this dude comes over. Honestly, I thought it was a, I thought he was a pimp. You know, if he had, <laughs> you know, if he just had, like, the collar with the, you know, seven buttons down and the gold chain and, you know, hair kind of slicked back. Mm-hmm. He had a funny accent. I don't know where he was from. I was like, hey, how are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm doing all right. And who are you? Because he saw me talking to the the older lady. Maybe it was her grandma. That's probably more correct. But, you know, he was like, <laughs> he was like you know, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, yeah, I was talking to this fine lady right here. And I started talking to the family. And the porn star sees me talking to her family. So at some point, she's like, she's like, mama, you know, mama, come back here. Come back here. And they we, they go behind the booth. But since we're in the middle of a conversation, they're like, no, no, come on back here with us. And, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, sure, sure. I'll do that. <laughs> and people were like, hey, who is this guy? You know, is he, is he in porn too? And I'm like, no, not really. But I could be. Yeah, exactly. So no, I got I to gotta post those pictures again, man. But that was a whole different vibe, whole different time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, you're lucky to see anything remotely risque there nowadays. Yeah. You think it makes for, I don't know, I, guess, I, I think it does make for a, a better con, but I, I don't know if they should have removed it completely. I yeah, I think I think it's because they're a nonprofit. They can't take any risks. Mm. Okay. And, you know, you know that they're, if the wrong politician, the wrong bureaucrat gets in the wrong office and they see that the pornography at Comic-Con, right. then their, their nonprofit status might be in jeopardy, better play it safe. Right, right. That makes total sense. All right. But so, come to, yep. Well, yeah, let me just say, you have a good idea, though, because there's satellite cons around Comic-Con, right? There's the, the Futurism Con, which sometimes takes place just outside in the gas lamp. And then there was a Gamer Con, and then there was one other, that would, you know, these other things. Why not have, like, an adult comic-themed one just, you know, outside? Yeah. Yeah, make sense. Somebody should do that. 
I mean, there actually is a lot of porn that goes on in San Diego. I don't know if people know that, but yeah. Oh yeah. It's a whole thing. I, I lived a block away from a studio once. Oh yeah. Did you, you ever see anybody just walk by and you're like, Hey, that's a. It was, it was completely gray with a very discreet mailbox. And for the longest time, I was like, what the hell is going on in there? So I just Googled the address and found it. Uh, that, that's the, that's a, sh- the, the least titillating story I can, it, is the true one there. Yeah. One of our, one of our art friends, I won't mention who it is here, but one of our art friends ended up getting a job and was like, Hey, we're not talking about that studio that called me to do some, you know, video and photo work. And I was like, yeah, yeah. What about it? Yeah. Here's the work they asked me to do. And I was like, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like a test, man. They want me to, you know, fix up all these, you know, shots and do Photoshop on them and say, I don't know if I can stare at this for that long. And I'm like, yeah, that is an interesting job. Did you meet anybody? <laughs> He's like, yeah, I met somebody. They were kind of cool. But then in the middle of the, in the middle of the studio with all this porn on the wall and people talking about whatever, it's like mm-hmm. her son runs in and starts talking to everybody <laughs> and he got weirded out. So yeah. <laughs> in- Interesting industry. If you've never run into any of those people, they are, you know, fine people, you know, just like everybody else, but Mm -hmm. they do a job that's risque. Yeah. So yeah, let me get into it. We have you here, Tom Malazzo. Give us a short, like who you are, what you do. Well, creatively, I'm a writer. So I've written two novels, two short stories. I've got a comic pitch that was complete, but rejected. So that's still floating out there. I'm currently working on a role-playing game that is based on the most recent novel as sort of a, a multi, a mixed medium thing. And my goal next after that is to do three one-shot comics, something around 30 to 50 pages, and just go straight to Kickstarter with them. Just, I can finance them all myself. I'm just using, I'm experimenting with using Kickstarter and mm-hmm. uh, promotion. It's not what you're supposed to do it for, right? You're supposed to do the promotion long time before that, but I'm going to see if this is going to work because there is inside Kickstarter that sort of, if you like this, you might like this engine. Right. Right. And I'm seeing, I'm going to see if that will work for me. Yeah, there are, there are a fair amount of Kickstarter. I don't know what you call them. Followers who are always just looking for something yep. new and interesting. And apparently, like you said, with Kickstarter search engine, they're finding that, oh, these guys are doing this and these other people back them. And I like what they back and such and such. So it's like almost its own little social network of crowdfunding, right? Yeah. I I backed, I went to see what was out there. I backed a bunch of them at once Mm -hmm. and then they all matured at the same time. And the completion emails all came in at the same time. That was a bit of a nightmare sorting through all those because you don't you don't just get one email to let you know the project is done right the right. kickstarter sends you an email saying it's done kickstarter sends you an email saying what your rewards are and then the creator reaches out for you too so like i got like 40 emails in one day and i had to, I had to process all through that and I, I missed a one or two uh, and so i paid for comics i never received but eh. but i do like you know i do think you know the floppy the floppy comic it stays our numbered it really is it's 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 an outdated medium and the comic book stores are really what's keeping it alive still. And I think going to a, like a, a digital serial form, either a web comic or like just doing the issues in digital format mm-hmm. and then 
the only physical format is a collected tray. And I think that's the way to go. I can see that. That's part of the experiment. You know, the, doing the three one shots, the idea is hopefully I'll build some sort of a, and also a nice thing about Kickstarter is, you know, once you've had one project complete, you can reach out to that audience and hopefully get them, you know, get like a snowball effect. You bring some of them over to the next project. I see. And then that, that comic book project that I pitched and, and didn't find a publisher then, I could technically start with that. It's a five issue limited series, but that seems like a lot best meant for somebody like myself who has not succeeded in, in building the audience on social media yeah. to try and, 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 and do that. That's a longer haul. And I can, I see myself paying for three issues out of my pocket. I could technically pay for five issues out of my pocket, but I don't want to do that. Right. Right. Okay. So before we, we'll, the marketing is one discussion, so we'll get to that in a bit. <laughs> that, that, that's a fun thing. And we've talked about that a little bit. So you had two books that you, that you went through, Picking Up the Ghost and The Faith Machine. So yeah. how long did it, and the, Picking Up the Ghost is your first, your first book out, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. How did you decide like, hey, I'm going to go write a book. I got this idea. Let me just start writing. I don't know if you have a writing history or not, but how did that uh, kind of come, come about? My, my attitude was sort of like, hey, I've read books. I can write one. Nice. So <laughs> it's actually started with a blog post. So I was actually, I, I was trying to get into comics writing first. I did pitch a one comic series back then. It was called Seize Him Confessions of a Hired Goon. It was about a crew of professional henchmen for supervillains. And that didn't go where it was supposed to. And, and then I realized, well, you know what? The, the, and I was really broke at the time. So like financing on the heart, the paying for the artists and stuff out of pocket, was just not a possibility. So I was like, well, I can just bang away at a work processor and have a complete something done and then go that route and hopefully use that to sort of build an up an audience that way. And that attitude came to me when I was also just sort of tired of what was going on in fantasy. I had written a blog post about uh, like things that I'm, I'm tired of seeing in fantasy novels. I thought, you know, well, now I'm just an asshole with a numbered list on his blog post. It's, that's not going to move the world. Why don't I take this list? and invert each of these tropes that I think is tired. And that became the, the template for the novel. So like things I was tired of was a hero with a, an orphan with a destiny finds a magical what's it is guided by a benevolent wise man because he's got to confront the big bad guy in the end. And I had a protagonist with the family did not have a particular destiny. His guided, guided wise man was actually exploiting him. Other things were I was, it was all the magic is very Eurocentric. I was tired of that. So I pulled from West African voodoo instead okay. for the, the, the magic. Yeah. And once, once I had all those like sort of inverted tropes aligned and sort of, then the next step is to outline. And I thought I was a heavy outliner at the time. The first novel had 12 pages of outline as I went around at it. Uh, my second novel had 77 pages of outline. Nice. So by, by, yeah, by outline standards, that was baby outline. Yeah. And then, you know, when I'm done with the novel, oh yeah. <laughs> well, when I'm done with the novel then I joined some writers workshops, got some feedback. The, the first workshop, they were like, we like the first half, we hate the second half. So I had to rewrite the whole second half of the novel. Mm -hmm. And then, then it's process of finding, okay. So when you're with, in prose to find a publisher, there's two paths you can do and you can do them simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So. There's publishers who have slush that's unsolicited submission. So I made a list of those guys that I wanted to hit in order because you can, you're supposed to only hit those one at a time. Meanwhile, you can find an agent 
So then you can hit as many of those guys as you want. So I was just sending out waves of submissions to agents. Ultimately, the publisher followed through first. It was a small press out of Canada. Did you have a preference? As long as I got published, that's all that mattered. If you have an agent, so so I said there's publishers who have slush piles, right? Mm-hmm. And there's more publishers who don't, right? The real big ones, only one of them has, takes unsolicited submissions. The agent is supposed to have the connections to get you seen by those guys. Right. So mm-hmm. you ha- if you have an agent, ideally you have more avenues of, to a publication. However... What does it take to be an agent? Shake somebody's hand and say, hi, I'm an agent. Right. <laughs> there's no standards for that. So even if I got an agent, who knows, right? Right. You know, there's, fortunately, fortunately yeah, there's, you're, if you're smart enough not to pay your agent, there's no real opportunity for grift there. Sure, if you want to be my agent, go be my agent. See what happens. Didn't happen for me on the first one. I very briefly had an agent representation for the second one, but she couldn't find a publisher. Ultimately, I found my own publisher for that. So when you said you had to rewrite the book or rewrite the second half or you went to reworked it, and, you know, I, I almost thought you said that like the book was out and then oh, you, no. <laughs> you rewrote it. Uh, and I got, you got me thinking, does anybody ever do that? Like where a book is finished and you're like, you know what? Mm, I don't like this. I'm going to, you know, George Lucas, a bunch of these parts and just re- rearrange them <laughs> and change them around. And I don't care what people in the past said. Did that ever happen? Yeah, you'll see revised. You'll see revised editions. I know Stephen King did it for a couple of his books. Like the very first of the Dark Tower book was revised after he wrote a few more of those and had a better better sense of what that story was about. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of times it's mostly just put back cut content. So like the stand, they put like 300 pages of cut back into that book and released it as revised. American Gods, that was, it released that one as preferred text, which I think is also saying, the internet huh. told me to cut this, but I want it back. <laughs> right. So, so you will see that. Yeah. Okay. Cause I, I never, I guess I never really found a good idea of what somebody did when they said revised or, I don't know. Okay. But that, that works. That works. Most, mostly it's putting stuff back in that was cut. <laughs> okay. So you, you're bringing out, uh, picking up the ghost and you get that one out. It's through, through a publisher, you said, uh, in Canada. Which it makes it sound like I'm a virgin and I'm in high school and that's my girlfriend. I know, but they are, they were a legitimate publisher in Canada. They were the premier, their name was Chaisin. They were the premier science fiction fantasy publisher in Canada. So I don't want to get too much into it, but that publisher imploded through their, their conduct and, you know, the usual typical stuff, funny and sex. So fortunately I might, that for me, if I got damaged at all. I might've gotten ripped off from hand sales they were making at conventions and not reporting as actual sales. So, you know, maybe mm. they, they ripped me off for a couple hundred bucks or something. Like it's literally not worth hiring a lawyer, right? an international lawyer to go get the money back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did, I didn't think about it too much, but, but the contract, so like also they have copyright for three years and then it could reverse to me. So when I asked for it and it had been okay. like seven, eight years. So I, I was literally at the point where everybody else was, who was with them was also asking for their books back. But I was like, well, my books back, my brains have been back for me for a few years. So why don't we make this official and we'll both go yeah. our, our ways. Do you mean the, the physical book is back or the, like you got the copyright, the copyright. So, so, so the yeah. rights to it. So when you, when, when you go with a publisher, uh, unless you make a mistake and sign it over copyright for good, and there are predatory publishers, agents, and such will try and do that. The typical deal is the author has pu- has copyright and you're essentially leasing out to the publisher for a number of years, mm-hmm. typically three years. 
And then at that point, there'll usually be some sort of provisos in the contract. And these are changing all the time because the, the lawyers on the publisher side are always trying to tweak things to their advantage. Right. They'll try and extend those periods and make that the new industry standard or something like that. But typically a decision that is made, like if it's out of print, if they haven't run off any more copies, then usually it defaults, you get your rights back. There's nothing else, you know, just rubber stamp that deal, part of the deal and it goes back to you. If they are still, and this is like how Alan Moore is getting screwed on Watchmen because that was the deal, right? And when it goes out of print, he was supposed to get his, his copyright back on the Watchmen, but it's never gone out of print. <laughs> right. There's always, you know what? That's funny. Cause I, I was thinking to myself several years back that I walked through a Barnes and Noble. I was like, once they have Watchmen here, it's like, man, it's still on the shelf. It's always here on the shelf yep. somewhere. Always there. No matter always. where you go, it's always there. That's, I <laughs> didn't know that was why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's the, the price of success. One of the many things that I'm worst pissed off about. Yeah. Well, one of the main things. <laughs> did, did you know that going in? Like, or, or were you just like, gosh, I hope this works out? Or did you really like, you know, research the whole publishing copyright process? And how prepared were you? I mean, I don't know if it just worked out or you really had everything in mind. I'm, I don't know. When I first started writing, I had all these delusions about how publishing worked. Mm-hmm. I, for example, I thought that I would finish writing the first draft to pick up the ghost. I would have a custom volume published and I would mail it to Stephen King and he would read it and be so impressed that <laughs> he would find me an agent and a publisher and all that. I know now that Stephen King gets crates of books like that every day and he <laughs> has no time to read them. Fortunately, I started dating my wife, Melissa, who works in publishing and she was able to break my delusions of all that stuff. So I learned a lot from her about how the realities of publishing worked. Nice, nice. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't know that. So do, do people like Stephen King, do, do they just take books and, you know, check them out? And like, I don't hey, think I like they, this guy. No, I don't think they do. They can't, I don't think they, they want to take unsolicited. I've heard, okay, well, I've heard a number of professional writers say, don't, please don't send me anything unsolicited. Yeah. And I think part of the reason is, is because if they happen to write something that resembles right. one of those submissions, then they can get sued. So going back to Alan Moore. Lee Ristory Gentleman got sued by a, a guy who wrote a screenplay, which was a similar premise. And it was a bunch of public domain characters in an adventure. Yeah. And he said, well, you've clearly ripped me off. So he sued Alan Moore and he sued whatever the movie studio was. Yeah. The movie studio just said, well, let's just settle on a court and make this go away. That pissed off Alan Moore because that to him was an admission that he had ripped this guy off. I see. I see. Huh. Yeah, that, yeah, that's all, it, it's all very, very weird because I similar industries like music, you know, they're like, Hey, let me hear what you've got. And then they'll bring the guy in and try to get him into a deal. But then years later, it's like, you hear something similar and it's just like, Hey, it's like, well, you're in the room and you played it for me. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. That's, <laughs> that's how it goes. That's how it goes in music. So screw you. Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking about in video games, we had a, a situation where I won't say, I won't say which company or whatever. I'm trying to think back to the legal ramifications of all this because we talked about it. <laughs> but basically, we had this great game that that we were going to make, right? And it was in the process. It was getting made. We were doing great things. And suddenly, some kid comes in and he's like, guys, guys, I got this email 
and these, you know, this whole folder of images. And he sends it out to like a lot of players in the company. Say, oh, this thing is great. I know we're doing something similar. We should go ahead and do this guy's game and contact him. And he's just so excited and legal, like ran up the stairs, you know. <laughs> There's an email sent out that like said, stop all discussion on this. The legal guy, older skinny guy runs up the stairs. I remember this because he was like yelling at everybody. He's like, Who's, where, where is this guy? Where is he at? Let's talk to him. You know, he says, you got an email from who? And they start talking and it's like, you know, he kind of like calls everybody over. Let me talk to this guy. Let me talk to this guy. Tell this guy not to leave the company, not to leave the building. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just, I'm not even on that project. I'm just kind of wondering like what's going on. <laughs> and basically they were in the middle of a project and this kid talking to this solicitation guy, the guy who tried to get a project going, it basically ruined them because they were like, oh, well, now if we actually finish the game, because you talked to that guy and because you <laughs> made all these connections and actually opened the emails and responded saying, yes, I did read this. I think it's great, et cetera, et cetera. We can't finish this entire game because you did that. Wow. Yeah. So the game never came out. The idea has never been acted upon as far as I can tell. In all the crazy indie games that have come out, I've never seen a game like <laughs> it still. And mm. it's just one of those kind of ideas I'm sitting on. And I'm like, hmm, I'm still friends with some of the law team on Facebook. I, should, <laughs> I probably shouldn't talk about, you know, the details or whatever. So weird stuff. Yeah. Lawyers fuck everything up, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, well, even worse than lawyers, I heard marketers ruin everything. But before we go to those bastards, so uh, you're pitching a comic and getting, okay, now going from writing a novel to a comic, why, why didn't you want to stay in novels or was comics always the end goal? I don't know. Comics was always, always the end goal. Okay. Yeah. I wrote novels to break into comics. Okay. But I, I but I, after writing two novels, I still really enjoy the long form medium mm -hmm. where it's not parsed up even. So I just finished writing, reading the collected paper girls. Like it's one book. It's about that thick. Now, I had been reading the trades before then because I had switched from the floppies to trades. But even then, like that experience, you have enough time between trade paperbacks, you know, six, six issues. So if you're lucky, they come out, you know, twice a year. That's enough time to forget the arc of the story. Right. You know, just be able to consume the whole thing all the way through is nice. And, but then like, some of the, like these big comics I'm looking at, uh, I can't read the titles from here, but usually like comics that come out, like as one volume from out of the blue, it's because of the writer and the artist are the same person, right. because you know, the page counts, I'm thinking if that book right there that I'm looking at has 400 pages. So, and if you could lucky, you could find an artist work for you a hundred dollars a page. I don't have that money to front up, you know, up front. Right. Yeah. Maybe I can get, you know, a loan, form an LLC, so I have no liability, all that stuff, but that's not cheap either. Yeah. But the last novel did not do well. It's okay. been two years and uh, sales are still in double digits. You know, it's a lot of factors, but I've done what I can to market it. So I have like a, a whole process to think about that. Like, I've got two, two questions. Am I terrible at marketing? Which is certainly still like, likely. Or... Did I write a novel? Nobody wants to read things that, that happened marketing wise with this. It got plugged on John Scalzi's blog. So it got exposed to a lot of people. It got a review on Kirkus reviews. It got exposed to a lot of people. 
And you've got Google ads, other ads and other services. So the, the views there were, were in the tens of thousands. Lots of people were exposed to the idea of the book, at least the cover, the pitch, et cetera. Yeah. Very few people went the extra step and purchased it. So I got to think that I really misjudged the marketplace with this one. So upon doing that, then I've got a lot of things to think about. Like, you know, when I normally make a mistake, I can sort of think about like, okay, well, how do I not make that mistake again? I've got nothing to, I don't, I don't know what to learn from this experience, except don't write a sequel. So yeah, I, I will say, you, you know, you asked, are you, are you bad at marketing? I'm gonna say a lot of us are. And when I say us, I mean, creators. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think in 2003 ish, I started hanging out with, I was at a video game company. I started hanging out with the marketing team just because they were interesting people. And I started hanging out with them. After a while, they started asking me questions like, hey, we've got these two characters here that you guys are coming up with. Let us know what you think about these names. And I'm like, oh, you guys are interested in the names? And why is this a thing? I'm like, well, no, you know, if this character's got a cool name and this character has a weak name, you know, then we're going to push the cool name character. I'm like, based off a name? It was just, it it was a weird kind of, you know, how are you getting attention for this? And they're thinking about, you know, flipping through Electronic Gaming Monthly magazine. And it's like, instead of, instead of Chun-Li, you know, if you called her like Sue, you know, it's like, <laughs> and it's like Sue, the, the Chinese, you know, kicking ladies, it just doesn't have the same ring as, you know, Chun-Li and all that. So it's like, okay, I can kind of see that, but I still didn't buy it. And mm-hmm. I think ever since then, over the years, I've just continually kind of been trying to figure out the branding sales marketing thing. And it's stupid. It's. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Yeah, no, it is. And Steve Jobs had this speech where he kind of broke that down to, he was speaking to a room of developers and they were mad at him for doing things one way. And he's like, you know what? When you're trying to get stuff out to the market, you kind of have to think backwards, you know? So you're a product developer. Instead of thinking of a product, you have to think about the guy walking by who has no idea of your product. And that's an, it's hard to always think backwards like that, where somebody's walking by and it's like, I have the fastest chipset in the world. He's like, huh? And keeps going. You know, <laughs> but then, but then you show him a candy colored Macintosh and he's like, Hey, why would you do that? Why would you have a candy colored mm-hmm. computer? This looks weird. Mm-hmm. What's your name? You know, Oh, Steve. Okay. Let me talk to you. And it just starts this whole thing. So that's why Steve jobs was doing a lot of the things he was and pissing off a lot of the internal developers and the development community. But he was like, no, I'm serious. I didn't figure it out, but you have to work backwards. I don't know if he had any marketing people that he really followed or tried to learn from, but I knew that a lot of it kind of touched him naturally. So I was like, okay, yeah. if he was like this and started figuring it out, what can I learn from that? So it's been a long process and I see why people actually go to school for this stuff, but oh yeah, well, for, well let's jump into, you know, a book we were talking about the, the faith machine. That you're, well, the faith machine is the one that, uh, yeah, that caused me the existential crisis. Right. Have you ever heard of the like seven to 10 touches where you need seven to 10 times for somebody to see something before they actually. Oh, yes. 
you know, think of a message and say, hey, aren't you the guy that, and it's like, yeah, I told you, you know, <laughs> six to nine I told you six to nine times ago, but it took you the seventh to 10th time to actually hear me. Okay. Yes. I'm that guy. And it's like, oh, okay, I'm still not interested, but I'm going to tell my brother about you. And <laughs> to me, once you've already created the thing, the repetition is just a, a, a bore. It's a chore. And, mm-hmm. and yes. Yeah, yeah. Figuring out how to make that work, those seven to 10 times mm-hmm. and keep it fresh and keep it interesting is as much of the struggle for me, at least. Mm-hmm. So no, I don't think, I, I definitely don't think it's a, it's a product problem. So I think you've got the, the mind and the skill to put together something decently readable, yeah. but this whole marketing thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the timing was not good either, right? The book came out literally like a month before the lockdown. So people were not going in bookstores <laughs> to see what's on the new shelves. Right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. That, that exposure. I mean, I sold, I sold a decent amount at the, when I was handing them at Comic Fest, I sold mm-hmm. every book I brought, I brought 12 books. I should have brought more, mm-hmm. you know, I was able to make contact with people and such. I was able to get in their hands, but right. Yeah. Yeah, that um, work shows. You don't understand that kind of hustle. I'm sorry, what? You work you've worked art shows, so you understand that. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. And yeah, I like artists will stand around and they've got really interesting pieces and stories, but people will walk mm-hmm. walk right past them. So there's this whole <laughs> bit of okay, I need to do a little bit of a barker kind of thing, but not be too goofy, and then. You know, you're wondering why the lady next to you is getting all this traffic. And it's like, why is she getting traffic? She's not doing anything. It's like, yeah, there's, there's so many pieces involved in it. I've just been really fascinated with it. And I finally come to the point where I don't loathe the whole idea of it, you know, where I don't shame it. I'm like, okay, I finally breathe in and, and kind of look at this stuff objectively a little bit. And with the, so. With your, with your marketing and, and trying to, to get your book out there, had you ever considered like getting a marketer, somebody to do it for you? I did build a webpage for a publicist who then did her thing. Okay. And you know, the, the problem with the difficulty with these things is like traceable results. Right. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's whether or not people with like major yeah. firms. <laughs> yeah. Whether or not what your her efforts had any effect, I don't know. Everyone I've talked to as a prose writer who's hired a publicist has been unhappy with the results. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm gonna stay away from that. I mean, the people I know who've been successful, like well, the person I know who's been most successful was uh, do you know who Spike Trotman is? Mm, no, I don't. She was a when I met her at Comic Con wait in the early two thousands, she was just she had a couple barely going with web comics that she was selling as ash cans. They were literally like photocopy stapled. And now Iron Circus Publish Press, which is her publishing house, just won two Eisners. Mm-hmm. I watched her go through all this. She did a lot of hustling and shows and she's got a personality for that sort of stuff, selling products at conventions. I think also it's a, it's a little easier to sell a comic to somebody in person because they can at least open it and evaluate the art, right? right? If somebody's got good art, at least there's pictures to look at. Who knows what the story's like? You know, I've just got 90,000 words. It could literally be like 
just something produced by one of those lorem epsom generators uh, you don't there's no quality there's no standard of quality all you've got is the, like the cover the back cover cover copy and that's it and my personality and she was in the right the venue to sell that but she doesn't do shows anymore like she's gotten to the point now where she pioneered sort of both well pioneered erotica on a kickstarter so she was doing she does the smut peddler line she bought that and what was her first actually no take it back her first big success on Kickstarter was Poorcraft. It was a nonfiction thing. Yeah. And it was literally just like things she learned about getting by, scraping by as a poor artist, and then just had had the man. She didn't draw that herself. She had that drawn. And that was a huge, that was like the biggest success on Kickstarter for comics for a while. And then she's done these anthologies and she's done this. I'm just trying to follow her mouth a little bit, like roll over the Kickstarter to the next, to the next, to the yeah. next. So it's worked great for her. All right. So, so if you want to, actually talk about the branding sales and marketing and what you know you could do <laughs> and what you've done we can do that okay offline or no here okay yeah let's do it yeah i mean we'll go like heavy deep or anything to be here all night but so you know the the first thing is definitely like what's you know getting the attention just that right off the bat like hey what's that and it seems so superficial but it's that first little hook right yeah it's i call that part carnival barking right sure hey you you sir what are you interested in yeah, it's like, you know, long line, you know, where people talk about in, in screenplay writing, you know, if you can just get it down to basically one sentence that gets somebody to say, huh, okay, what's that about? Or I want to know more. Somebody says, hey, there's, there's a new movie with Steven Skull and Demi Lovato. You're like, I might not be interested in that, but what, you know, why would they be <laughs> together in a movie? It's, it's just, <laughs> just something that hooks you. Right. And that's the, that's the attention thing. So. I don't know why she got attention exactly, but whatever her opening story was, or if she was just in enough people's faces, she got the attention. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for the next thing would be like the, the interest, you know, okay, now you've got my attention. They're going to ask kind of a second question, like, okay, what's, what's interesting about this? Where's the, mm -hmm. I, I stopped because, you know, flashing lights or guy jumps out in the street, they've got my attention. Now, what am I going to do with that attention? Let's say in the example, the guy jumping out in the street and waving his hands, it's like, all right, why are you out in the street waving your hands? It's like, I drive an armored truck and, you know, a bunch of money fell out. Listen, I'm going to quit my job anyway. You can have that money. It's like, okay, that might be a little interesting. I might not take it. I may just, I may just film it or whatever, but that's actually interesting. I'm going to, I might stick around to see more, hear more. So now you've got the attention thing happened, the interest, and then the desire or meaning. What does it mean to that person? You know, so, and then we're getting a little deeper into, okay, if we're talking about somebody who is into a certain type of novel, you know, then it's like, okay, this novel is about, and you're hoping that you're going to get, get that person with some personal meaning or some personal desire, even if not for them, maybe somebody they know. You know, it's like, hey, okay, this is about, this is about love story about, you know, a vampire and a werewolf. They got to get love together, da, 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 some, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know what? That is real. Okay. 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 You have my attention. You got my attention. It was interesting. And right past that, I, I need the desire. I need the, the meaning. What is it actually going to mean if I take this home and read it and consume it, it's got to have that little bit of meaning for me. And now that you start to, it's just one step deeper on the interest level, basically. And then after that, 
you get into the proving where you have to prove it. It's like, okay, you say it's a good love story. You say it's all this, prove it to me. And it's like, well, actually my father was a vampire and my mother was a werewolf. And, you know, I've got the stories here. Here's some proof. And, you know, it brings out a book and it's got like a lineage and all this from, from somewhere in Europe. And you're like, holy crap, this guy proved it to me. Okay. <laughs> so he got my attention. Then he got my interest. You know, he showed me there was meaning in, or, and I was desirous of that meaning. Then there's like, he proved it to me. So you have to have the proving because otherwise you'll just kind of throw it out of your head and say whatever and not care or, you know, just keep going and you'll forget. So now they proved it to me. And then can you get them to act on it? You know? So now you're standing there talking to this, you know, vampire werewolf hybrid guy. And it's like, okay, I believe him in everything. What does he want me to do? And a lot, this is where a lot of people fall off. You know, they, they find ways to get attention, impact, meaning, improve something to somebody, but then they don't get them to act on anything. Do you want to get an email address? Do you want them to go to your website? Do you want them to follow your Instagram page? And it's always like, it seems like you, you would throw a lot of out, out at them at once. Like, Hey, follow my Instagram and I have my book there and this and that. But whenever you're messaging to people, it's always that one mm -hmm. thing. Yep. Like, Hey, just do this one step. And then at some other point, I'll give you another step or another action to do or to take. It seems kind of weird and manipulative. It is, you know, where you want them to act, yeah. act on something. Sales is manipulation. Yeah. yeah. That is necessarily bad, but it is manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's come, you know, if somebody's come to you, they don't want the first thing and you're trying to get them to exchange money for you or whatever you have. So that is inherently manipulation, but yeah. 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 I, 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 and when I find it wasn't a good time for me to come out to conventions because, you know, we'd just been in lockdown for two years. I could barely yeah. hold a conversation with people. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's I, I hear well, everything you're saying, but man, I, it was rough making those pitches to people as they're walking by. Yeah. And that's, you know what? And, and this is why, you know, they always say like, you know, never, I think as, as developers, we're all, we, we have a perfect situation set up in our head. And then by the yeah. time we finish developing or as we're developing, the situation, the landscape changes. And this is what mm -hmm. market, this is what marketers live for. They, they <laughs> live for this stuff. So like a, a pandemic happens and they're like, Hey guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic. You got to do this right now. You need this. And it's like, oh shit. I already got the attention and the interest because we're in the pandemic, you know, mm -hmm. why does this guy mean anything to me? It's like, Hey, you're trying to sell books in a pandemic. You can't do it like you normally used to do. Now you got to do it this way. And they're like, yeah, that means a lot to me. And then you have to prove it. He'll have to prove it to you. So they'll probably do some song and dance, show you his YouTube page or whatever. <laughs> but yeah. And then he pushes you into an action. And the thing is using that current environment, like the, the pandemic, you have to say, Hey, you're not going anywhere anyway. Why don't you read a book at, at the very <laughs> basic, at the, at the most yeah. basic, it's like, yeah, you don't want to go to the movies and catch COVID or anything. You want to stay home and read a book. How about this one? And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. I mean, that's just, that's just one example of that type of thinking. Right. So yeah, it's, it's almost nauseating. You know, the fact that I just, it is that I just kind of spit <laughs> all that out, but I'm like, <laughs> it's, it's sticking with me now. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things you have to do sell yourself. Yeah. And I've, I've almost, I think we can get to a point and I, I'm hoping I can, I'm still not totally there. I'm a developer at heart where I can get to, where we can get to 
actually want to move marketers and a lot of that middle, the middlemen out of the way. And I think mm-hmm. in this era of social media connectivity, I, I do believe that we're all kind of, if not being forced to, there's a great opportunity for us to become our own little media companies where it's like, what's it, what's it get so motivation and momentum, right? Once you have fans who are your advocates, then they're going to do a lot of that legwork for you. Right. Get it. Getting that point is tricky though. Yeah. And after proof, that was the last two parts of it, the community and the talking. Mm-hmm. Once you get a community, you're, you're good. It's like, I've got my five, 10, 15, however many people mm-hmm. it takes and then expand from there. And then talking where people start actually telling and sending out your, it's like, Hey, I know this guy tone who does, mm-hmm. you know, the faith machine and all that. It's good stuff. You got to check it out. And they're kind of mm-hmm. doing the work for you. <laughs> it's it, wild. And then, and that's part of the thinking with making the role play game based on, on the second novel is that there's a whole, so first of all, I'm using an, an existing rule set called fake. There are something like 60 role playing games based on this mechanics. Mm-hmm. So there's people who are going to just buy all of them. So there's some, there's certain percentage of sales you're just going to make right there. Yeah. And then they'll be exposed to the material. And then hopefully then they'll run the game and then those players get exposed to material. And then somebody will look, where did this come from? And then they go back up and then find the yeah. book that way. Now getting into game development, then this is a tabletop game, not a video game. Yes. Tabletop game. So okay. the, the mechanics is fake. It's now called fake condensed. It went, it was, uh, it used to be called fake core. They did a revision of it. And unlike Dungeons and Dragons or some of the more traditional games, which are kind of being, kind of being like a physics simulator, right? Mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons doesn't quite do it, right? Physics definitely breaks down, but it's definitely trying to, to do straight up. This is a situation, situational simulators, better phrase for it. Fate uses narrative structures okay. instead. So when you make a character sheet, instead of just a bunch of numbers, like a D&D character is, the character has aspects. Yeah. So say my character was just a simple one, like a, a hitman for the Vatican. When I need to do something that a hitman for the Vatican would be good at, then I can spend, I can invoke that aspect and I get a little bonus towards that action. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still numbers at the bottom and your skills and your wall and stuff like that. But then the flip side of that is when I do something to the detriment, because I'm a hitman for the Vatican, I'm, I'm compelling my, my aspect. And there's this role-playing economy in the game that if you okay. do things that your character would do that are to the detriment of the plan, you gain points that you can then spend to your advantage when the time is right. Yeah. Okay. And this is a, is, is it like a creative commons kind of system or how does it? It's not creative commons. It does have an SRD. So I think there, there's some level of the rules. I could probably publish this myself without it. I have to look at the details of it because there's, there's a number of self-published games for, for, for fate. Yeah. I do want to submit it to the publisher though, because yeah, it, I don't want to do all that work. Okay. <laughs> well, before we get into the, the nitty gritty of the game or, uh, yeah, I still want to get a little more on the, so it's the faith machine, but there's also espionage, ESP and eyes, or how does that? Yeah. Well, espionage would be the name was visioned as the name for the, the IP. So like there's star Wars and then there's a new hope. Okay. So there's espionage and then there's the faith machine was the first story in the series. Okay. So tell me uh, about the world of the, okay. the faith machine and espionage. It started when I read the John Ronson book, the men of Steric goats, there was a movie about it a while ago. They fictionalized a movie 
And it was about, and this is a nonfiction book. This is about America's Cold War psychic warfare programs in the 70s and 80s. They, and the, the name comes from uh, this army battalion. It's called the First Earth Battalion, who were trained to be mind warriors. They would train uh, remote viewing and clairvoyance and telepathy. They claimed to be able to, one of them claims to be able to titularly s- kill a goat with his mind. And then once that happened, you know, they, that was what they were practicing because being psychic hitmen is something the army is interested in having. Yeah. All these, all these programs. And I was just like, it's crazy that this stuff happened. I can't tell a book if this stuff is legit. I'm going to keep talking and hope that it's. So yeah, yeah. We just, but I lost you. We okay. had a, a power surge here. So they hit oh, Wi Fi. Okay. okay. It's crazy that this program happened. I can't tell if this stuff is legit or not. I still don't know if psychic. I read, and I read beyond that, I read a bunch of other books. That are involved with it. I don't know if there really is a potential for psychic powers in human beings, or if this entire thing was a Soviet plan to get America to waste a bunch of money on this program. Because before the Metastar Ghost program came out, there was a, a book released, Psychic Warfare Behind the Iron Curtain, I think the title is. And the authors of that book got a whole lot of cooperation from the Russians during the Cold War. So I have to think that that was, that was purposely fed information like they were yeah we got this and we've got that we've got all these psychic technologies and it's kind of the reverse of what we did to them with nuclear weapons got them to spend a bunch of money they didn't have hmm. all right so it's it's possible it, either one of those things is possible but while i was reading that like so so okay so i'm, I'm become aware of this this situation and then a lot of the superhero tropes that i are part of my brain from reading comics so much feed into it and it becomes sort of a superhero deconstruction. There's, you know, the typical superhero deconstruction, like the Watchmen, wants to justify everything. It needs to justify the teams and the costumes and, and all that stuff. And right. I thought about like if there really was people with powers, how how do they get affected? Would they work in real life? And at that time there was like we were there was there was the Tea Party and there was Occupy Wall Street which were right. two new political movements. Well, what happened to them, right? The Tea Party got co-opted by the Republican Party and Occupy Wall, Squat got, Occupy Wall Street got squashed. That's the two things that happens when there's a new power on the scene. So that became the framework for like, okay, if they're psychics, they either have to work for the, the, the government as a psychic spy or they're cut out of the picture. And that became the framework for, that just lent itself nicely to the, the spy environment in the first place, right? Yeah. And that was, that was, that laid all the groundwork for, uh, the, the environment, the, uh, the other most important thing, I can't remember the guy's name. Well, I was thinking about how psychics would work. This guy, he was just like a, just a bro, just, you know, the jock and all that. And he took a dive into a swimming pool and it hit the bottom head first. And when he came back out, he was in a coma for three days. And then he had this com- compel comp- he was compelled to write music and he was very good at it. it. Just came out of nowhere and he still does it. Like he just keeps writing music this they call it acquired spawn syndrome okay so i tied that into the psychic powers thing too where people with psychic abilities they see the world a little different so the the power sort of then causes the same symptoms as a mental disorder so every everyone with a psychic power 
right. has right. a mental disorder, or at least the effects of it. The relationship between the, the disorder and the power, I leave ambiguous. My goal with that politically, or like, you know, the message was I simply wanted to show people with mental disorders doing their jobs without issue, just working through it, no problem. That, that gave it a little extra flair to, to you know, make it was that like extra little tinge customization to the, the superpower yeah. set. Mm-hmm. So is this more to you, does it feel more superhero with spy elements or spy with superhero psychic elements? The spy thing overrides the superhero. Yeah. Because okay. <laughs> yeah. the powers, I, I kept, I kept scaling back the powers because that was part of the, like my concept was the powers couldn't be too flashy because that would give the game away. So like when I was developing the characters, all the powers kept scaling down and down and down until some of them were very subtle. But yeah, there's the, the flashiest person is 97.4. She can, she's electrokinetic. So occasionally she sends off a spark. All right. No, this sounds, this sounds interesting. It's not like, it's not a, a, a mental leap, but it's, it's fresh, if you know what I mean. So I think yeah, it's, it's just a. There's nothing new there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just, it's a montage of elements that are already out there. Well, no, I mean, that's what a lot of the, a lot of the greatest stuff is. And I think that's what oh, yeah. a lot of the best artists do when they're looking for where they can take something. It's like, well, how, why haven't we done this yet in mm-hmm. this way? And I think that's where you really, you know, put your stamp on it. So no, I think that's, I think that's totally cool. We be so would you you mentioned about video games earlier as as something you may want to get into, but then you were didn't <laughs> hurt you've heard things about it. You, you wanted to get into video games, so was that was that before you wanted to write? Yeah, well, I wanted to write when I was a kid. It was okay. it was one of those things that came in phases. You know, we would come back every so often. Like what really started me writing was my day job. I was working software. I was doing accounting software for Boeing was not very creatively fulfilling. And that's when I started actually like getting serious about writing. So wanted to write as a kid, joined the Marine Corps. Then I started like reading books about film. I was like, oh, I want to, maybe I want to get into film. And then Pulp Fiction came out and was like, well, if movies are going to be this good from now on, I don't stand a chance. <laughs> Little did I know that they weren't. And I became aware of what was going on in the video game. Some of the narratives that were being coming out, you know, in the, in the early nineties and PC game. So went to college to become a programmer, I had a friend who was on the development team for Fallout 1. And I was listening to his stories about, you know, the development and all that. It, you know, And then I also listened to a story about how he got laid off the day before he was supposed to get his completion bonus. I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to be in this industry. I think I've, I, <laughs> I probably dodged a bullet there. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, I, I'm an outsider, mm-hmm. but, you know, this industry does treat a lot of people very poorly. I don't have to tell you right, probably, but you know, yeah, I don't have, I don't have bad things to say about the industry, but the industry is full of bad things and going, going through it. I know that like, oh, wow, this happened to this person. This happened to that person. And, you know, things happened, you know, in my sphere. So I, 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 mm-hmm. total, I totally get that, mm-hmm. but I think there, there's a lot to learn, but there's a lot to be fixed up and I'm. I think my biggest concern with the industry is I don't think they were doing enough good, not like, not like goodwill, but it's like, there's opportunities to do things. And it's like, Hey, we're going to come out with another first person shooter. And I'm like, Oh my God, what's different about this one? Well, 
and I, I thought a lot of the ideas, although although they might have been very entertaining, I thought a lot of the ideas were contrived. So a lot of my ideas about mm -hmm. art and trying new things out weren't happening in games. So that's kind of what pulled me away from it. But no, I, I don't. It's an industry I I promote, but I don't really recommend to people. If that makes any sense. <laughs> Totally, totally. This. So, but especially in in relationship to story in games. So, let me ask you about a story, right quick. What makes a good story to you? I know it's a terribly broad question and could give me a wild variety of answers. But when you think of a good story, what is what is that to you? Mm -hmm. My wife tells me that I'm too enamored with the big idea, and that's probably true. So, I <laughs> one piece of feedback she gave me was. Nobody wants to read about how clever you think you are. So my idea of a good story is, be, is, is, a, is withdrawing that impulse and making it more human. Somebody I heard recently said, like, the big difference between Clyde Barker and Stephen King is Stephen King understood human beings, mm -hmm. which is, is something I need, it really need to focus on when I, when I do a, a story. I think getting that, that human connection is essential, uh, but I still like the, like, I still like, you know tossing, you know, overthinking things and tossing out what I think are clever ideas and you know, compelling world. My favorite, my favorite, one of my favorite writers is Tim Powers. And he, his style is simply just to take this weird point of history, dig really deep into actual history, and then come up with some sort of supernatural explanation for what happened. Like, I love that kind of stuff. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the human, the human beings still writes compelling humans, but you know, to me, the human beings are kind of optional at that point as a reader. Right. Right. Yeah. So I'm trying, I'm trying to fight my impulses on that. Well, I think that, you know, I am, I'm a true, at my core, I am a true introvert. All of the, the talking and social that I do is, <laughs> is well-practiced. I come from a family of, <laughs> of people that were out and about networking and talking. And that was just the way of the, the neighborhood things that I grew up around. So that's what that is. But I do get your point about it's I, I almost a lot of times a lot of my offerings want to remove the the human from it and just be able to have an interaction, if that makes any sense. Like somebody's yeah. watching like, oh, that's that's interesting how this played out and how this moved there and how that all folded together. And yes, there are people involved and it make that's what makes it make sense. But I'm almost watching this this dance of elements of a story kind of play through <laughs> and when it finally ends and I'm happy with it, I'm like, Oh, that was beautiful. You know, and it, it made me cry. <laughs> it's like, uh, not because of, I'm not, it didn't make me cry because of, you know, the way mm -hmm. that person was just sad and, you know, a lot of facial acting that, 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 that kills me facial acting. So I don't know if you can relate, but no, that, that makes, that makes I want to add sense. Go ahead. I want to add something to that though. Like, I still have this impulse to try and save the world. And what the, I can think of like, well, the, the movie that I can think of to save the world was Dr. Strangelove. Okay. Because when that movie came out, a lot of people in the nuclear program were looking at some of the generals and be like, yeah, some of our generals are literally legitimately crazy people. We need to phase these people out to have that mm -hmm. kind of impact in the world. You know, uh, the only thing it, I can think of recently that did that was Get Out. Like that movie really influenced me. I realized just like, mm. Oh, just us white liberals just saying that we're white liberals and casting our votes and stuff like that is not enough. And, and a lot of our attitudes are actually really condescending. And I, 
you know, a lot of people in my, my social circle, like saw that movie and were like, we can, we can re really rethink a lot of how we think about race. So, you know, they have that kind of influence. Yeah. Well, I'm saying that's not my, my zone to, to talk about. And any, you know, based on my ethnicity, there's not like a lot to say about Italian Americans these days. I did think about one though, like, okay. Italian Americans in my dad's generation were bought, bought totally into white privilege. And it's the ironic part is that it's like their fathers, their forefathers were not considered real white people. In fact, like one of the biggest lynchings happened in America happened in New Orleans. It was seven Italian guys. Well, why is that? And it's like, oh, you guys have fucking sold out. You, 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 you were given an opportunity to, to become part of the system and you took it and now you've turned around at all the other injustices and you're, 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 since you're benefiting from it, you can tell I didn't get along with my dad. Since you're benefiting from these injustices, you're buying into the system. So I thought about like, like a super. Like Superman in the thirties where like he's one of the opposition is this Italian American cop uh, who was both corrupt and, and uh, anyway, I was just spitballing. <laughs> Maybe I, yeah, like that's the closest thing I can, I can think of right now. Huh. Yeah, no, those were, those were great and very funny examples. I like the, I, I, I kind of, when you, when you mentioned get, get out, you started into, you know, just the the, the relationships between, you know, maybe different groups of people or people from different backgrounds or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's, I think that may have been what I was kind of hitting at with, you know, a dance of all these elements packaged together. Mm -hmm. And when you said get out, I was really shocked because I was like, oh yeah, that is one that has all these elements played together. And it's a very human story. You know, I mean, you care about, mm -hmm. you know, what these people are going through and you're like, wow. Uh, I can relate to that, can't relate to that, but I'd like to know more, et cetera, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. so no, that's a, that's a, that's a, that was a good, that was a good example. Now I'm understanding your, your, your point of view a little more here. So, okay. That's very cool. But the tricky part is like not making it a, a soapbox. <laughs> right. Yeah. What's your, what you're doing a lecture that's, or, mm -hmm. you know, here's how this works. <clears throat> Chapter one. Yep. <laughs> yep. So how do you, how do you, uh, how do you think you avoid that? I have to sort of like let my emotions guide me. I was working on a story called mediocre white male time traveler about a guy who had, who had saved the past. And then while he was saving the past in the eighties, he kind of rigged things for a little bit on the side. So he was have a better life. And then he returned to the present and there's a version of him living that better life. So it was all about somebody who would, you know, best intentions, tried to do everything right and didn't get any benefit out of it. I'm like, this, this is me complaining about being a middle-aged white guy. I can't, <laughs> this, yeah. this is just going to sound like, oh, so sorry for myself kind of thing. So I've scrapped that project. You know, the, it, it, the feelings is it really, I've had a number of projects where like the feel, I could tell the feelings are not, are not sincere. Okay. You know what, even, hmm. I, I want to, I don't want to put this out the wrong way, but the even when the feelings aren't sincere, it's that there are feelings and if you're open and vulnerable with them, I think that's what a lot of people will relate to. So it's like, yeah, hey, listen, I, I wrote this in this vibe. This was my, I don't want to say thought process. This was my mm -hmm. emotional state and feeling at the time. And, you know, for a more technical minded person, I, I come from, you know, CIS and software engineering programming. So. I think I, I get that in a lot of respects, but mm -hmm. 
putting that emotion first and then trying to work out the details of how can this still work and how can I be vulnerable? Maybe not put out the, the right response or the right mm-hmm. answer or the right product or whatever, but saying, Hey, this is the story of how this all kind of came through. It's a, it's a lens or whatever. And I don't know, much like, much like the marketing, it's a, it's a totally different way of looking at things. And, you know, I, I am not good at it by nature. I throw what I'm developing to a lot of my much more emotional slash social pe- people, friends, mm-hmm. and they'll say, Hey, you should add something about, and I remember I wrote a short story and it was about, it was about these characters who were, were going to a party and they wanted to hide their superpowers, but they, they wanted to have a good time and be popular. Right. So when mm-hmm. they go to the party, they start using their powers. And of course they become a little more popular. People are like, Hey, that's very cool, man. I just do that magic trick. And they're trying to hide their pop. They're trying to hide their powers. And in this world, <laughs> in this world, people know that powers exist. So mm-hmm. they don't want to let on too much that they actually have powers. They just want to be the life of the party. And I was doing all this stuff about, you know, society and, you know, p- people's expectations. And I, I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And then everybody, the emotional slash social minded people who were looking at it were like, you know, the best part of the story was the conversation on the ride there and on the ride back. And I was like, what? <laughs> that BS. And then somebody said, like, like I mentioned, you know, walking with the, a certain kind of shoes on, right? Walking with the ankle boots. And they're like, yeah, you know, that's a very human issue, you know, you know, walking through rocks and, you know, it's just really touching that you thought to put that in there. And I'm like, holy crap, I was going to remove that. I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Yeah, so so no, I I I, t- I totally get you there. And the, by the way, I don't know how my video feed's coming through on your end. You're totally frozen on mine, but I can hear you just fine. Oh yeah. Okay, yeah, I can hear you just fine. Hopefully, it's recording on the back end. You're you're doing one of those uh, slow bandwidth slideshows where it's just freezing into reaction for it. Well, yeah. Faces. <laughs> yeah, you know, lights flickered on and off a couple times here then my printer rebooted so some kind of power going on <laughs> in in the neighborhood it, it's obviously nice. screwed it's obviously screwed with the wi-fi so we'll see what's happening yeah. with that but yeah man i really like what you're like what you're doing and i i don't think that thank you you i think your product is is, is solid you've got a lot of good ideas going on with the characters and, and the world i think it's just a matter of and this is with most of everything, right? Figuring out how to send it out to people and how to get them to attach to it. So, yeah, I think that's yeah. the major thing. And you know what, though? I'm, I'm starting to think that what I really need is an attitude, uh, applying stoicism, really need an attitude of that just being out of my control and really just focus on mm-hmm. making content instead of, instead of the marketing. I would, I was like practically bring myself to tears sitting here on Twitter, trying to think of the right hashtag that would, you know, get me over the edge and stuff like that. And I said, why did I spend all that emotional energy and time doing that? I could have written another novel instead of like, just, just obsessing on marketing stuff, you know? Well, that's just it. You know, a lot of the marketing isn't about like working it. It's just about, Mm -hmm. you know, Hey, communicating where you can. Some guys, you know, Maybe an email strategy isn't best because you don't like email. I do like your emails, by the way. Follow uh, 
tone and you'll be able to get his email newsletter. How often do you publish that? Thank you for the shout out. Yeah. What's that? How often do you publish your newsletter? My goal was once a month, but I haven't had anything to say in a while. <laughs> yeah. I, I know I know what you mean. I think the the strategy that has started to work is finding a way to, at least for developer types, is finding a way to take whatever you're doing, the content that you're creating, the I mean the actual product that you're creating, not the content. Content's the marketing side. Taking whatever product you're you're doing, whatever you're building, and find a way to document that instead of trying to create content, if that makes any sense. So as yeah. you know, thing, and that's like, tricky. Go ahead. Here's the thing. Like you could, like with you doing a physical product, like you could like Twitch stream doing a piece of art. Mm -hmm. That I think that's valid. I've seen authors on Twitch, like writing on Twitch. I can't imagine something I want to see less somebody type that's terrible <laughs> yeah cool I've, I've never seen that i i tried it once myself and all of my friend steve was came on board to <laughs> cheer me off maybe, yeah i don't know maybe i should you know what though like at least like i got that hour done so maybe maybe make a routine <laughs> you know a, a lot of stuff a lot of people watch, watch a lot of stuff on twitch that i don't understand so who knows maybe uh, it's my thinking that's wrong i mean and that's that. Hold on. You said that your thinking is wrong. It's not that it. It's not what you're doing is not wrong. It's just it just found some certain audience, right? And <laughs> yes. Separating. No, see, I mean, seriously, separating yourself from like what you want and what you think is going to work. I started my lives on Facebook, and only did a live on Instagram because I wanted to see how the technology worked. Was it any different? Was it a solid platform? I didn't know. But for whatever reason, people were like, hey, I saw your live on Instagram. That was cool. And all my friends were on Facebook and it just didn't matter. It was like, whatever. So I was <laughs> like, uh, okay, well, let me go with this. You know, I tried, I, I was trying, uh, uh, basically what you try, and this is what I've learned from a lot of marketers days, what you try isn't, you're not trying to get something to work. You're trying to find out what you do that you like that resonates with people. Mm -hmm. So that's more of a yeah. crapshoot, right? Yeah. And that's why, like, that's why I'm hesitant to write a, another whole novel on spec. I think what I need to do is shorter pieces. Like I was talking about the comics, do some short fiction. I'm thinking about, right, instead of, if I come up with another different novel, do a short story along mm -hmm. that vein, see if that has legs. Right, right. No, that's uh, a because, because an because the novel takes a couple of years. And then I, I was so invested with that last book. I put so much of myself into it. So yeah, it's emotionally draining. <laughs> so does it feel, I don't want to say bad, but does it feel even more draining or does it pull at you a little bit when you, when you try to go back and remarket something that you've already completed? Hmm. Does that make sense? No, I totally understand what you're saying. I'm, I'm just going over my emotions over the two. Like I have less difficulty plugging, picking up the ghosts because I know at least it sold a thousand copies or more. It's really tough for me to talk about the faith machine because the sales are so low. So, and, and I start to choke up and get, and, and the role-playing game, for example, that's only, the document's only 40,000 words. I, I was on, and that's the goal for that, that public, that's the word count goal. 
And I was at 30,000 words for months, not touching it because I was just to touch that IP again with the, the emotions that I had going on was not productive. <laughs> Wait, the whole espionage IT? Yeah. Or anything relating to it. I didn't, I didn't want to think about it. I did. I wanted to move on. And I'm, and with the role-playing game, I'm kind of doing both things, right? I'm, I'm taking all the stuff that I, all these dreams I have for future novels mm-hmm. and, and all that world building that didn't happen goes into the role-playing game and I get to at least push that out. And it's sort of like an exorcism. Like it is, I'm still dedicating myself to making as good a product as possible, but I also okay. just sort of need this out the door so I can move on to something else. Okay. I don't know if you ever heard me talk about energy, but I think that's very important that whatever you're, you're flowing with, you know, whether it's writing the game development or whatever, however you get that energy to keep flowing. Yeah. For most people I run into that's, that's paramount. It's paramount for me because I can, I know that I can develop faster. If I, let's let's say take a month, go do something completely different and then come back to what I was doing. Otherwise, I would have been sitting six months trying to bang my head through something. That's something I'm so bad at. I have my agenda items are so much. I want to finish something before I move on. Because I used to have the thing where I just jumped project, 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 right? I'd only have like the first little bits of things, nothing remotely complete. And my goal then was, okay, if this is what I'm going to do, then this is the only thing I'm going to do. But then I run into the obstacle where I don't just don't do anything. I think you're at your your method is better. I mean, you know, it's, it's whatever you flow with. And, you know, I don't want to say that you should stick to something until, you know, and that's only that thing, or you should bounce from different projects. But like I was talking to Tony Barnes several months ago and, you know, one of his things, he, he was developing two games at once, which I recommend for nobody. I was like, Oh, two games at once. (laughs) He's like, yeah, but they're feeding each other. And I was like, okay, I think I know what you mean. And he was talking about the fact that he would work on the graphics on one side and he got to a certain point where he couldn't push it any farther. So he was like, well, let me experiment with this other graphics thing on this one. So he'd go to his other game, experiment with the graphics in a different way over here. So now he has two products he can kind of compare against. And he kept going back and forth and built them in parallel. That worked for him to keep his energy going. And I kind of got the concept as he told me about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a, it's something I have a hard time, like ever saying you should do it this way or whatever. But I do know that the most uh, detrimental thing for creative and development is just not being able to create and develop anything. So stopping is basically, you know, getting towards death. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was, I was tempted to stop just everything all the while. And after a couple of months of it, I started to feel that itch again. So I was like, well, I guess that's not an option. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think, I remember, you know, I know people who've gone off and then, yeah, I'm not doing whatever project anymore. I left and then come back. And I don't know what to say about not sticking with anything. I think then you get to start talking about fears of not finishing or, or fears of actually finishing, you know, what that means, fears of success or whatever. But yeah, that's a, it's on a case by case basis. I'm just about moving with your energy flow and trust me, I getting on Instagram and doing all this stuff, it's actually made my creativity better 
because I'm able to flow with it now. It's for whatever reason, I just started flowing on Instagram and I was like, huh, all right. Wasn't flowing on TikTok, deleted, done. And besides, it's got other problems, but yeah, done with that one. Move on to what, where I have energy, where I have a good flow and see where it goes from there. Yep. All right. Let me ask you this random question. Are you into wrestling at all? I go into wrestling every couple of years and get caught up. And then the story, you know, the, the meta plot doesn't move as quickly as I think I need. And it starts to, you know, it, like the last phase, it was like the, the magical hillbillies versus Roman Reigns. And it was just felt like the same thing over and over again. Yeah. I really liked the magical hillbilly family. Like the characters are fantastic. I think, I think wrestling's problem is like, they've got a lot of, they should have like a laissez-faire thing and get rid of like the writer's room and just let the wrestlers and their own like acts mm-hmm. and sort of take the, take the, the story wherever direction it goes. But one of the story ideas that's in my, you know, shelf things to get to as a wrestling comic is kind of, it's called uh, Hey Seed Her- Hercules. And it's basically the 12 labors of Hercules at, in a pro wrestling context. Huh. There, that's, that's interesting. Because I, I don't know, the, I was asking because talking earlier with, with Patrick Hickey, the author of Conjury and a comic book writer, and he, he mentioned that he was talking about wrestling and jumped over to comics. And then I was like, you know what, why does it seem like everybody that's into wrestling and comics is into games or games and comics all spent to <laughs> wrestling? There's always that trifecta of wrestling, comics, and games that you kind of can't get away from. I was wondering what the relationship was. <laughs> Do you get any ideas on that? I think wrestling is as close to wrestling and superheroes are pretty close, right? There's almost, I mean, and we use, even use wrestling terminology and superheroes. You talk about heels, faces, the heel face turn. You talk about tweeners, like Black Adam and, and Neymar are tweeners. Magneto's a tweener. There's somebody who's in between good and bad, bad guy. You know, the, the terminology comes, comes into play very handily. It's flamboyant. It's all about physicality. Yeah. There's just lots of commonality in there. Both industries are run by grifters, con men who rip off the creators. <laughs> Sad, but true. Cough, cough, Vince McMahon. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but, and, and, and both of them have a, a childish appeal, right? I mean, there's. There's part of the part of you that likes wrestling was part was part of you when you were a kid and same thing for superheroes. Right. Yeah. And, and games, throwing games in there too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking uh, about a lot of the video game companies and running into like the head guys and they're like, yeah, all this video game shit, whatever. We're about to go to the strip club and do this and that. Like we just got the new game here. You didn't want, you didn't want to play it. Yeah. Kid, I'll play it later. And it's like, wow. Okay. It's, it's very weird. Maybe you should do, a, I got to do a little more research on that. Wrestling, comics, and games. What are, what's the connection? That could be interesting. I always felt like at Comic-Con, the re- yeah, there were, there were people who were wrestling nerds, and it was definitely there. I'm trying to think of like the really, there, there's, there are, there's a publisher that focuses entirely on wrestling comics. I can't, I've never seen their work. I've seen their panels a couple of times. Yeah. Strange times we live in. All right. So well, that's for sure. So basically right now you've got this, uh, you've got your RPG game coming out with the, the fate engine. Mm-hmm. Do we, do they call them engines in RPG paper RPG land? 
I think I've heard him referred to as engine, even though there's not, you know, it doesn't do anything on its own. <laughs> right. So, so that's what you're, that's what you're working on right now. Mm -hmm. When is that looking to, or what do you expect next from that? I am, I've been playtesting a campaign of it and I, I'm entering the last phase of that campaign tomorrow. It might be one session. It might be two, three, four. So the playtest is a, is one of the benchmarks. The word count has been exceeded. I do have a few more things I want to add in there. So that's maybe three or 4,000 words left of writing. And then the, then it enters the second draft phase, which is sort of feedback and processing that copy editing. And then that will go off to the, to, to the publisher as a submission. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's a really chill phase, right? Cause you're usually waiting on things. <laughs> you send it out to people for feedback and then you, you get some time for yourself. So I'll probably start working on the stories for those comic projects I wanted to do during that phase. So with, you said looking for a publisher and this also, and was there any ideas about self-publishing or do you have any thoughts on that? Self-publishing is a job. I know a yes. couple of self-publishers and I'm, I'm willing to self-publish electronic format stuff. Like if this role-playing game could self-published, I'm going to do a PDF of it, especially with flight change stuff as it's currently is. I don't know if I want to deal with physical media. You know, maybe like if it's part of a Kickstarter, maybe I could make that a stretch goal. And if it's successful enough that I could see maybe doing a print run. Cause you know, like the, the layouts have to be redone between the two mediums and, and just getting things out there, like mailing it to all the different targets. Yeah. yeah. So public and then. I, is my, when I started writing, self-publishing was still somewhat stigmatized, stigmatized, but now it's in a phase where you'll see self-published authors on panels next to traditionally published authors. There's not really a much stigma. I mean, you, as long as the person self-publishing is going through the same effort to polish their product, because some people will just self-publish, they'll get the word count and then they'll just upload it to, to Amazon with a graphic for the cover and, and that's terrible. But some of the people I, I know who self-publish really, you know, they, they get professional editors, they get professional cover, mm -hmm. jump design, all that stuff. That's all it's just so much work. <laughs> so wait, why, why is that? Okay. What did you mean when you said like the, just slap a cover on something and upload it to Amazon? That's terrible. What's what parts are terrible? You need to, ref you can't just finish the first draft and go, you know, you need, there's a refinement part. Okay. okay. The draft yeah. and, and uh, and a lot of self-published authors skip past that. Right, right. As I, as I've looked at the self-published stuff, I really feel like it resembles the pulps, pulp novels from the early days of uh, the 20th century. You know, like some of it's, some of it tends to be a little titillating. They're, the self-publishing, like when self-publishing on the Kindle was first big, like the erotica scene. Well, yeah. Because people would not want to be seen reading erotica on the bus, but if you got your Kindle, who knows what you're reading? Right, right. I've actually seen that. And seen a Kindle with some racy, racy stuff. All right, go ahead. But then Amazon, every time, you know, every time something good happens, so if someone does squash it, Amazon kind of turned the, the gears down on that. I, I don't know what the current state is now. And, and the, the, you know, the event it's most, it's, so it's mostly erotica and pulpy adventure stories. Okay. Memoirs are big there, but, but yeah, that, I mean, that's what it is. I think sex and violence. I see. That makes, well, that makes sense. I think uh, I was talking to, I was talking to Holly Stacy. She used to work for a publisher and her current strategy is to release small things on, 
on Amazon, you know, slap a cover on it, have it, have it drafted several times, go through the processes, you know, get it edited or whatnot, but release it on Amazon as a, I forgot what it was called exactly, but it's not like the final like the edition. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. So she, she's releasing these products on Amazon. And the thing that being on Amazon does is it gets her a lot of reach and she gets to send it to like her email list and say, Hey, now on Amazon. And that's a, <laughs> that's a, a, that's a point of attraction for a lot of people where they're like, oh, it's on Amazon. Oh, that's cool. Hey, congratulations. Da, da, da. You know, I'll, I'll check it out. I'll order a coffee or whatever. And then she can follow up with all those people quickly. And then mm-hmm. she's still like taking those, those stories, those pieces, those bits and working together for a bigger something that she's looking to take to a publisher. So she's got this uh, testing out strategy that goes to Amazon. So she's kind of using uh, Am- Amazon as part of her marketing. But then does she ultimately send the, sell the same material to a customer twice? Yes. The, re- the raw version and then the refined? Wow, that's old. I never would have thought of doing that. I shouldn't say the raw, but the, like earlier, okay, go back to our trade paperback <laughs> example, where you're selling different comics and then you sell the completed trade paperback. So okay. it's, I'd say pieces more more than raw unfinished ones okay okay so it's not like a beta read situation right right okay yeah oh yeah that's something else that really worked with electronic publishing and self-publishing is serialized it, like the, the like dickens wrote that way serialized all those different okay. novels were published in newspapers so it's a natural form right, to do right. it it's just something that kind of kind of fell by the wayside it's fine like electronic publishing is, is bringing a lot of stuff back the novella came back too right. the page count for a novella didn't make sense for publishers but for self-publishers especially digitally there's literally no reason not to yeah yeah i mean i think there, there are so many options out there oh yeah you know just sitting around and talking about this you know i've had different thoughts about huh wait a minute that person said something i thought they were crazy but now tone said this <laughs> they, they may have something so I, I, that's to me, this is part of the process now. Like when I'm doing my mm-hmm. marketing and trying to figure out how to talk to the market, mm-hmm. everything, this weird process of getting stuff out there and for lack of a better term, beta testing it, like I would do with the game. Mm-hmm. I started doing with a lot of my ideas, trying them out on people, on internet, on social. And yes, this whole weird new thing, I am not a professional marketer by trade, but I've been hanging around them for a while and trying to study them. So <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to come at this from a development point of view, which the marketers typically don't do. So we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think I would love for the product that you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, you can't say that for, any, for a typical marketer. <laughs> No, no, no. Most of them are, are coming from, many of them come from, according to product, bad places. And it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite honestly manipulative. It's, you know, there's a lot of lying involved, shysterism, if you want to call it that, car salesman type. And then they're like, well, hold on, let me clean up my image and try to act like I'm doing something <laughs> nice for the people. And... Yeah, it's just kind of how things are. But, you know, when you, after looking at it for a while, I'm like, you know what? But this is true. This psychology is why something works for these people. Maybe if I can just find a way to update the way that I'm presenting this, 
then at least I'll be able to get in the same room as some complete charlatan, right? And as long as I'm not being beat out by a complete charlatan and I have an actual product out there, then all of a sudden I'm hitting in the, in the area that I think Stephen King started to hit in, that Steve Jobs started to hit in. I'm thinking of products people that are really good at natural marketing, right? Mm -hmm. So they're out there and just learn from. So, man, is there anything else you wanted to jump into? Because I think I hit most of the items that we were talking about earlier. No, I think I'm good. Yeah, this is refreshing. You know, I like this. Uh, what you were, I see why you do this, right? Like this, I, when I talk to another creator, I get energized. I, they're here in San Diego. We've got this uh, writer's coffee house, mm-hmm. but we haven't been able to meet for years in person. We just started meeting again. And it's like, when I go to a convention or I go to the writer's coffee house or something like that, I get kind of, you know, this energy from it, like this motivation to, to put something out again. Yeah. Get to it. Me and my friends, iron sharpens iron. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, but we use that a lot. It's like me, Raph, we'll come together. It's like, it's almost like a show and tell. It's like, hey, what do you have? What are you up to? It's like, well, this, this, and this. It's like, uh, oh, does it do this? And it's like, I didn't think about that. And then, yeah, it was <laughs> iron sharpens iron kind of thing. And mm-hmm. since, since we left San Diego and started splitting apart, that's when the whole, you know what, we got to find a way to start keeping in contact in different ways. And this was one of my ways. So I think I'm going to keep going with it. Yeah. I used to have a writer's workshop that we, we would meet in our house. Melissa, my wife and I were both part of it. And uh, when we all finished our projects, we all went our separate ways. <laughs> and I really wish we had kind of held on to that one. Yeah. Do you guys, do you guys have a Facebook group? You can meet up with like five people if you want. Yeah, I should probably think of that. Even some of them aren't on Facebook though. Yeah. You know, something about that though. Yeah. I need, I need to get, a, I need to get something regular going though. Thanks for that. Yeah. I have a, one of my writers groups, we, we split up, but now we're, we have an email kind of chain that's been going on oh, yeah? for the past. Ooh, it's going on four years now, four or five years. <laughs> and cause we met at an art show. Well, I met one of them mm-hmm. at an art show and then there was another event and then we're just like, Hey, we should have this this meeting that we do. And we always used to meet at this coffee house, like, like yours. And then that stopped happening. So we just kept in contact over email and mm-hmm. yes, this, this email thread has been going on for like five years. <laughs> I was at just one thread somebody who, who works on email exchange servers. I mean, <laughs> it's, it, it's not one it's uh, it, was, okay. it was one for a while, but then we started like, let's restart them and do other things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get clear that out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool, man. I have I've definitely been energized by this conversation. I hope you have as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Always a pleasure, Ben. Always cool. So tell us where people can find you. Tonemalazzo.com has a very you know, a name like Tone Malazzo has very high SEO. And I'm on that I use that name everywhere, uh, on Twitter or on Instagram. And I'm trying to move things to Mastodon because I don't like what's going on, on Twitter. But nobody else is on Mastodon. I am there. Well, um, is Mastodon? <laughs> it's a decentralized Twitter equivalent. So oh, okay. anyone can spin up an, their own Mastodon server and then and then become part of the, Ma- the Mastodon network. Okay. Functionally, it's very similar to Twitter. All right. So um, hit you yeah. up on tomalazo.com. Yeah. Yeah. I have links all the social media on the top there. Ooh, cool. 
All right, man, this has been good. We're at an hour 20, about average time. So I think we got everything. And I am happy with this, man. I appreciate you coming on. Oh, good. I'm very happy you have me on board. I appreciate it. All right, man. We'll talk soon. All right. All right. All right. Hope to see you in person sometime. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> Peace. And... All right. Well, that was Tony Malazzo. I hope all this gets recorded and I hope all of it works out well. Had some connection issues when when I had a little power issue, but we keep it moving, we keep it going. If it didn't work out, I got a lot of good notes and I wanna I wanna revisit this conversation because a lot of good things came out of it, out of the marketing and we didn't get too much into branding, but definitely the marketing side of it came in. So we got one more day of Benjicon. That's gonna be that's going to be with Joshua Garcia. So be sure you're here for that. And even if you're not, be sure to check us out on our podcast. Mr. Benz's ADV experience can be found on any of the podcast channels. Amazon has a podcast stream now. So if you're on Amazon Music, you can find podcasts there. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify is a place where everybody seems to like to go. Stitcher, Podbean, et cetera. You have no excuse. Mr. Benz's ADV experience, look for it. And I will see you guys later. Thanks. Hey, thanks for joining me on this podcast. You all make everything I do possible, and I really do appreciate it. So even if you've got me on social, please visit MrBinja.com and see what's happening and how deep the rabbit hole goes. All right, I'll see you next time. Peace.